So we are continuing our series that we started uh, five weeks ago as we are working our way through the Gospel of John this summer. And uh, this summer is like every other summer in that there were times we're gone, lots of things going on, times we might miss church or whatever it might be, but yet this summer, as we know, is not like any other summer, uh, even that there's kind of more going on and things are just odd in lots of ways. Um, but amidst of all of that, we are just going to continue to to study God's word. And so no matter how crazy your summer is or if it's just everything is stopped, you can follow along with us as we study through the, the gospel of John. We're going chapter by chapter. And so today we are on chapter six. So again, we are five weeks in. This is week six. And, and we've seen here just how John's gospel already in these first five chapters um, is a unique view of Jesus' life. Right? When we look at the gospels in our Bible, we have four gospels in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all give us a different perspective of Jesus' life. And we look, when we look at the word gospel, the literal translation of gospel is good news. And, and we, as we look at the story of Jesus, is there's no a more fitting you know, title for the kind of literature that we see in these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that describe Jesus' life, because there is no better news than the news of Jesus. And yet that is the, the, the literary form that we read in gospels. It means the story of Jesus' life. And and yet they all give us a different perspective. And John's, as we've seen, right, it gives us a kind of behind-the-scenes look. I mean, we get more details of the, the, the private conversations and, and the, the, the different things that happen between the disciples and between Jesus and, and some of his more motivations. And, and we see that ring true, especially in chapter 6. Okay, because in chapter 6, we start off this chapter with two very famous miracles of Jesus. It's the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And these are, again, very famous ones, uh, miracles that we are pretty familiar with. Um, But as we jump in today and as we read our text, we're going to start with, again, the first 21 verses of of John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to John chapter 6. If you don't have your own Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats that you can use if you're here with us in person. If you're watching online, again, grab your phone, grab your Bible that's next to you, open it up to John 6, and we're going to read John's account of these two very famous miracles. Um, And now, again, John is very uh, specific in what he includes and what he doesn't, um, but we know that these are significant, again, just in the ways um, that they're mentioned in all the Gospels. However, as we read it, just notice that John gives us a different perspective than some of the other ones. And and so, again, we're going to see that as we read it. So we're going to read these first 21 verses. Um, but as we jump into it, like I said, we're jumping right into it because, one, we have these famous miracles. We have a lot to learn from them. But also, we have a lot to cover today. John chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the entire gospel. Okay? And so we have a lot to cover. So we're going to jump right in here. Uh, John chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Okay, where it says, After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him, and it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him, and turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew that he, what he was going to do. And Philip replied, well, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. 
Well, there's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with, his, with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes, and the men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves. He gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. Afterwards, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left, uh, left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. And when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles, and suddenly they saw Jesus walking in the water towards the boat. They were terrified, but he called out to them, Don't be afraid, I am here. And then they were eager to let him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. Okay, so we're going to stop there again as we see... Um, this John's account of these two very famous miracles, right? Of feeding the 5,000 and of walking on the water. Now, when we see these miracles, this, the, the first thing, again, we have, we've already learned from John that, that he was very specific in what he included in his gospel and what he didn't. In fact, the, the number of miracles in John's gospel is, is astonishingly low. Okay? But there are only two miracles that are included in all four gospels. Okay, the first of which is the resurrection, right? Which is the greatest miracle of all, obviously. It's what sets Jesus' life apart, right? It's how he accomplishes his mission as Messiah. So the resurrection, of, of course, is included in all four Gospels. The only other miracle other than the, other than the resurrection that is included in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. So we already know in the fact not only that John included it, but that all of the other Gospel writers also included it, that there's something very significant about the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, now, um, the other one, the famous one, the walking on the water, which, as we see, is connected to the feeding of the 5,000, happens right after the feeding of the 5,000, is, is included in three of the four Gospels. So this, again, is a very significant miracle. But when we look at the feeding of the 5,000, we need to ask the question, what is it about that miracle right, that makes it so important? Now, then there's lots of reasons we could probably come up with, but one that, that I have come up with, that I kind of believe why it's included in all, is, is that this miracle is, signifies a very important turn in Jesus' ministry. Okay, this was a, an event that everybody remembered, not necessarily because of the miracle. I mean, Jesus did lots of miracles. In fact, he did lots of, of more impressive miracles than just feeding a group of thousands out of five loaves and two fish. I mean, he, he healed people, he rose people from the dead. I mean, these, these are all, you know, much more impressive miracles. So what's so special about this one? I believe this was the event, though, that signifies a very significant turning point in Jesus' life and in his public ministry. Hey, we see this, right, in the fact that that even as John has been building this case for Jesus as the Messiah, we've seen how in the first few chapters of the gospel that Jesus was deflecting the attention, right? He, he's pushing the spotlight off of himself. He, he, he was not known by anybody. 
other than his mom and, and the disciples and just those closest to him. I bet we've seen, though, how Jesus, now in these last few chapters, in chapters 4 and 5, where he, he has invited the public attention. In fact, he's banked on it already. And now here in this moment is where we realize that Jesus has reached a whole new level of popularity. In in fact, in in today's terms, right, we might even say that Jesus has gone viral. Now, again, in our culture, we say we know what that means, right? If you go viral, it means that one day you're a nobody, nobody cares, and the next day you have a million views on your YouTube channel. Right? And, And you go from nothing to incredible popularity overnight, right? And that's exactly what we see happening here with Jesus because he went from just a few chapters ago where nobody knew him, right? And and in fact, Jesus was trying to remain a nobody, right? To now, Jesus is literally attracting thousands and thousands of people, right? That his reputation has gone out. He's, He's done enough miracles. He's done, healed enough people that he's gained this reputation to where he's also very quickly gained lots of popularity, right? Just as, as the NLT version translates it, we saw as we read it that, that there was 5,000 men in this crowd, right? So when you include women and children that were likely there as well, I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people. And, and so we see that Jesus, again, his popularity goes up very quickly. Now, now just imagine, again, if Jesus had come to our culture today, he would have been, um, you know, probably seen in a different light. He, he, he likely would have even potentially had a, like a marketing team, right, to, to keep his popularity going because we know what happens when you go viral, right? Is that you go, one day you go from nobody, the next day you have a, a million views, right, and everybody cares, but then the media cycle goes on to something else the next day and, and you can become a nobody just as quick as you went viral. Hey, now imagine if Jesus was in our world today as he's gone by. To, so again, you hire these people that help you, right, to, to keep your popularity. Imagine if he, Jesus had a marketing team today. They, they would have used this miracle, right, in a way that, that would have, uh, you know, advertised to everybody, you know, everything that Jesus is doing, right? Uh, again, perhaps maybe the big sign, right? It's, it's, it's a big miracle, right? Over 5,000 servants. Right? Now you can imagine how Jesus, right, is just kind of silly perspective, right? Jesus thinks the sign is a bit much. Jesus would have felt that way, I'm sure, right? But but again, Jesus did not need a marketing team, right, in order to gain popularity. But yet, imagine, though, what even our culture, how they would have reacted to Jesus, even in this miracle today, right? It it is just another just silly comic strip, right? Jesus shows up with them. Can, Can you imagine these reactions to Jesus, right? I can't eat that. I'm a vegan, right? Has that Fish been tested for, mer- for mercury. Is that bread gluten-free? Right? We, we would have all of these kind of pushbacks on Jesus, wouldn't we, in our culture today? Lots of different reactions. I mean, I, I, and we know that. And, and yet this, again, was not the way that Jesus received, but, but, but yet we, we know that, that this was a major turning point in Jesus' life and in his ministry. Right? That this event was so important that all of the gospel writers felt like they needed to include it. And yet, John uses these two miracles differently than the other gospel writers. Right? We've already looked at his purpose of why he wrote the gospel, why he included what he did, was he was building a case to, to make sure that we had no question that Jesus was the Messiah. 
They, and that he was exactly who he said he was. And that he was 100% human and 100% divine. Now, John uses the feeding of the 5,000 okay, and walking on water to set up the bread of life discourse. Now, we notice when we read John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, if you read this, about this miracle in the other Gospels, and the same is true of him walking on the water, is that John leaves out a lot of details about the miracle. Okay, now, we... In, in a way, the way that he writes and describes it, he almost assumes that we already know the other details. That we know about all these other things. And, and yet, John gives us this kind of behind-the-scenes version. Right? I, I mean, it almost gives us, kind of fills in some of the holes that were missing in the other accounts, right? And things that everybody knew. This example of why did Jesus go off by himself okay, um, between the two miracles? All, all the other Gospels acknowledge that. In fact, they say he went out by himself and he prayed, you know, for, for all those times, which I'm sure he did. But, but yet John fills in and tells us why he went off by himself, right? He went off because he could tell, he read the crowd and could tell that they were about to push him and force him to be king, right? He's like, my popularity has gone too far. And so Jesus escapes. Now, Jesus uses these, he kind of, he fills in the, the, the details as John fills in these details to set up the rest of chapter 6. Hey, now, the rest of chapter 6 is known as the bread of life discourse. Now, you notice it's, it's in parentheses on the outline. It's that way because this is kind of the scholarly um, tag for this section. As I mentioned before, chapter 6 is the longest chapter in the gospel. Okay, it is 70 verses. Okay, now, this discourse is not a short lecture and teaching by Jesus. Okay, Jesus engages into teaching with, with this crowd okay, and, and, and the disciples, but yet this word discourse is a fancy scholarly word for speech okay, or for teaching. And we see this bread of life discourse, like I said, it is lengthy, and, and Jesus uses it again to teach these, some very important details about who he is, about why he came and, and how he is accomplishing the mission of the Messiah. Now, really, Jesus doesn't go into this discourse until the next day, right? After this, we see the feeding of the 5,000, he just goes off, right? It's, it's kind of, it's overnight when he walks on the water, right? And then the next morning, right, is this crowd comes back out to find Jesus and realizes that him nor the disciples are there anymore, right? That they've left, they've kind of, so they go looking for him. Okay, and they finally find Jesus back on the other side, back in Capernaum. Okay, and then Jesus enters into this dialogue with him, known as the bread of life discourse. Now, the, the, the majority of it okay, is found in verses 22 through 59. Okay, and this is, this is the main teaching that Jesus does here. And once again, we see Jesus do here what he's already done a few times already in the gospel. And that is that he uses a physical example from this earth and from our world and our culture to teach a deep spiritual truth. Now, just like we've seen in already the stories leading up here, is that this is, is confusing for most people that is receiving this teaching. Right? They can't make the jump from the physical world to the spiritual truth. Now, here, again, Jesus uses this miracle from the day before, the feeding of the 5,000, right, to to explain how God wants to nourish our, our souls in the way that food nourishes our body, God nourishes our soul. And, and how the Messiah, again, is coming to usher in this new 
a phase of God's plan of redemption, known as the covenant of grace. Yet we see the struggle continue of using the physical world to explain spiritual world and how confusing it is. Okay, now, so these people find Jesus the next day, once they realize where he is, they find Jesus and the disciples, and they come to him, okay, and, and they, they present Jesus with a question. They come to him, they're like, first off, they kind of say, hey, Jesus, like, are you going to feed us again? Hey, and Jesus is like, nope, I'm not, right? Like, I, I want to teach you the lesson. This is kind of the, the, real, the real point, right, of, of this popularity that he's, he's gained. And so they, they come to them, but they come to Jesus, right? And this is the, kind of how they open this dialogue as Jesus starts to teach them this. In verse 28, they, they reply to Jesus. They say, we want to perform God's works too. So what should we do? Hey, they come to him. They're like, wow, these, all these miracles, like, and you fed this, these crowds and all these things. They're like, we, we want to be able to do the same thing. We know that you're of God. Right? We want that same power. How do we get God's presence in our life the same way that you have it? And then they, they present Jesus again with this question. How, what do we need to do? Now, this is a very interesting question. This is a question, again, that, that was obviously in their minds and hearts at that moment. But this is a question that is still very prevalent in our culture today. Right? When we look at their culture compared to our culture today, right, this is a question that comes up all the time when it comes to Jesus, even today in 2020, right? Because ultimately their, their question was, how can we earn God's favor? Okay, they're saying, we want to have God's presence. We've got to have God's power. We want to be able to do the things that, you, that you've been doing, right? How, how do we earn it? Again, this is a question that, that has been asked by so many people for so many years. Right? How do I earn God's presence? How do I earn God's power? How do I earn God's love? How do I earn my salvation? What do I have to do? And this, this question is presented as much by us in 2020 as it was by then in Jesus' time. And this is a very common question. Right? However, you know, Jesus, as the authority in this moment, right, he looks to them and tells them, you are asking the wrong question. You're missing the point. What, what I'm trying to get you to understand, right, is, is that you don't have to earn God's love at all. You don't have to earn your salvation at all. Right? He, he gives them the answer to say that, again, you don't have to, even ask that question because me as the Messiah is I am bringing in the covenant of grace. You don't have to earn anything from God because God already loves you more than you can imagine. God wants to, to give you his presence and the power that comes with that presence. God wants to save you and you don't have to earn it. That is what the covenant of grace is all about. That's the definition of grace, right? Is receiving something that I do not deserve and that I cannot earn on my own. And Jesus tells him, this is why I'm coming. Right? This is why I have come. This is why you need a savior. And he tells them in verse 29, this is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one that he has sent. 
You don't have to do anything other than that. Right? Just believe in the Messiah. Just believe that, that I am the Messiah, that I have been sent to you, right? And, and just, just follow me. That's all you got to do. And you will receive all of the power that you want. You will receive all of God's love. You will receive your salvation, right? Because you, God knows you can't earn it on your own. Just receive it. Right? Come, just receive it in the, through grace. Again, the covenant of grace was something completely foreign to them. It was the opposite of anything that they had ever known, especially when it comes to religion. What's the religion that they knew in their culture, right? It was the law of Moses, right? It was you have to go to this place. You have to sacrifice this at the right time. And you have to do all this to atone for your own sin. And, and yet it's not a, a perfect sacrifice. You have to continue to do it. And, and it's just a list of all of these works that they were going through. That's what they were used to. But yet the covenant of grace is, still feels just as foreign to us today as it did to them then. Because everything else in our culture works in the opposite way the grace does. Right? You work for what you get. If you work, you get paid. Right? If you put in more effort, you find success. Right? And that's the way that our world works, but that's not the way the gospel works. Right? Because Jesus, again, brought in the covenant of grace. And as this was the deep spiritual truth that Jesus was trying to get them to understand. This is, this is the number one thing that everybody who desires to follow Jesus needs to know. All you have to do is believe in the one that was sent. He is ushered in a new covenant of grace. And then we see, though, as, as they continue on through this dialogue, right? As Jesus tries to use this, this bread, you know, this as an example of what God wants to do in their lives. And Jesus uses this, this miracle from the day before. It says, see, I mean, here, I showed you, right, the, the example of grace. Again, you didn't earn that food at all, right? And yet you received it, right? And it blessed your life, right? And it, it, it helped you move forward from where you were. And, and it provided all of this nourishment for your body. And God wants to provide the nourishment to your soul that you find through salvation. And, and, and then they, they come back at Jesus. They, they push back against this concept as they give him this new question. Okay, the next question that they present to Jesus in this dialogue during this long discourse, okay, is are you really better than Moses? Because again, they do the same thing, right, that, that we saw the religious leaders do in the last chapter. They look towards tradition to find what they need. And they knew the tradition of Moses, right? And how, again, Moses had led Israel through, through wandering through the, the desert, right? And, and they used this comparison of manna and the, the, you know, the, the food that was provided for them from God through Moses. Right? Again, their mind is still stuck in this physical food place. Okay, we see this in verses 30 and 31. Okay, it's again where they answered, now show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? I mean, after all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. And the scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Again, they were still stuck on the physical bread. Right? And they were coming to this and saying, well, Moses did this. What can you do, Jesus? Now, it's very interesting that they come here and they actually demand a miraculous sign from Jesus to prove that he's the Messiah. Because, right? you know, what happened to all this? 
right? What, what, what started all of this, this and brought this in, into, into fruition here, right? It was, was a miraculous sign that Jesus did. In fact, they started this conversation on the next day with them acknowledging the miraculous sign that Jesus did, asking how they could do the same miraculous sign or any kind of miraculous sign. And yet here, how quickly it has shifted, right? The crowd has shifted their expectations. They've gone from, from coming to Jesus and saying, we know that you're God. You do all these awesome miracles and, and we want that same power to now in this moment demanding a miraculous sign. Right now, you can just imagine what Jesus is like in this moment. Right? Because we've all been there before, right? When it's like, you have no idea what you want. You will never be pleased. Right here, you come asking this, and now you've shifted over to here. And, and just as a leader, you kind of raise your hands and be like, they, they just, they don't even know what they want. There is no way to please them. Right? This is a moving target. And we see, again, as, as the crowd shifts, again, and then they focus on the, on the tradition. Right? And looking for that authority, again, they, they come to Jesus and say, well, this is the way Moses did it. So you need to do it the same way right, as Moses, because if you're claiming to be the Messiah, then you've got to be better than Moses. Are you really better than Moses? Is that what you're really saying? And you can imagine the, the, the comparison that they draw out here in Jesus. Right? As they compare him to Moses and everything that Moses had accomplished, because Again, this miracle that Jesus had done the day before, and from their perspective, likely would say, well, you fall short of what Moses did, right? Because Moses fed a nation, and you only fed thousands, right? Moses fed this nation for 40 years. Jesus, you only fed us once. And when we came asking for breakfast, you, you denied. Moses brought bread from heaven. Right? You used bread from a little boy. You can imagine them literally kind of and, and figuratively shaking their finger in the face of Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're no Moses. And yet Jesus answers them. Right? As, they, as they throw this back in his face, Jesus comes back at them as he answers this question with, yes, I am. Now, again, his answer was yes, but then notice, again, the I am is in parentheses, and the I am is capitalized because the I am is a noun. Jesus comes back. He's like, yes, I am. Now, we've seen this I am title many times in Scripture. In fact, Jesus kind of throws it back at them as they're comparing to Moses, right? Uh, of, because the first time we see this title used in Scripture is with Moses at the burning bush. Just remember when the burning bush, Moses comes up to him, right? And because of the bush, he's like, oh, what's going on? Who are you? And God answers, he says, I am. And now here, Jesus again uses this same phrase and, and again, once again claiming his 100% divine origin. As Jesus says, yes, I am. Now, Again, there's several places through the gospel of John that Jesus uses this title for himself. In fact, this is the second time in the gospel that he calls himself I am. Okay, now, when we went through it in the first time, I didn't point it out. That's kind of your, your 
trivia challenge for this week is to go back and find where the first one is. Okay, but as we go through it, again, several times Jesus uses this phrase about himself. Again, as he tries to connect the physical miracle to the spiritual lesson that he's trying to get them to understand. And once again, they don't get it. Right? Because they are still looking for manna. They're still stuck in this physical bread thought. Okay? And then Jesus comes back to them in, in verse 35, right? When he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Again, he says, I am the bread of life. Now, this is the first of seven I am statements made by Jesus in the Gospel of John. I said, this is not the first time he's used the I am title for himself. He uses that more than seven times. But but throughout the Gospel, right, Jesus makes seven I am claims. So he uses the title, right, the divine title of I am, and then this added description of who God is and what his character is. Okay, this is the first one where he says, I am the bread of life. Again, what is the point that Jesus is making? Okay, what is the claim that he makes here, right? Again, the bread of life, that I will not just feed you physically, but I will feed you spiritually. I will feed your soul. And as we see this, again, we, we understand, right, that, that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, right? And he says, again, says, if you eat, you'll never be hungry again. And then he also says, but and if you believe in me, then you will never be thirsty. Now, there's this obvious connection that Jesus is making back to chapter 4, where he talks about the woman at the well, and again, he told her that he was living water. Right, and told her that if if you drink of the living water, then you'll never be thirsty again. And here he says, well, if you eat of the bread of life, right, then you'll never be hungry again. And and Jesus here connects these two analogies, right? And yet he's he's telling us and showing us, again, how to, to access the covenant of grace. He's teaching them the same thing that Paul teaches us in Romans 10.9, right? Which is, again, tells us how to be saved. In Romans 10.9, it tells us if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and confess with your mouth, then you will be saved. Bread and water. Believing and accepting. Right? Both provide where you'll never be hungry or thirsty. Again, that your soul will be complete. if you receive the covenant of grace. Right, this is back, right, building on top of what Jesus or just taught them a few verses before. Right? All you have to do, you don't have to earn it at all. Just believe in me. And now accept it. Right? Eat the bread, drink the water, and you will be saved. You don't have to earn anything. That is the covenant of grace. And as we see, again, that Jesus makes this this lesson to them. He's saying, just believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. And and then once again, the people just struggle with this comparison. And and as they're sitting back, and as Jesus is making these claims, they're they're sitting back and be like, wait a minute. Like, we know this guy. How can he be claiming to be divine? Right? We know his parents. Right? We know where, where he came from, we know, that, I mean, he was a carpenter, like, just like last year. Like, and, and they struggle, again, with this, with this 
physical world and the divine role of the Messiah. In fact, in verses 41 and 42, we see, you know, Jesus kind of explained to this, right? And then in verse 44, they're like, they're the, but we know the human Jesus. And again, they can't make the change from the carpenter Jesus to the Messiah Jesus. And then in 53 through 58, Jesus takes the teaching even to another level as he, as he foreshadows communion, right? And saying, but those that eat my flesh and those that drink my blood, right, will seal that covenant. And, and again, this is where the, the people just lose it, right? And this is where they're like, we don't get it. But Jesus, you're, you're, you're not making any sense. I mean, to us, looking back, it's an obvious foreshadow to communion, and we, we understand that. But again, to them, it was incredibly confusing. And then we have the last 10 verses of the chapter. Right? As we move into this last section, verses 60 through 70. And this is where, though, the rubber meets the road. This is where Jesus turns the corner in his teaching. Okay, this is where Jesus does with them the same thing that he does with us. Right? He teaches them this new spiritual concept, and then he challenges them to actually live it out. Again, this is where following Jesus gets real. Hey, this is where, again, it goes beyond just gaining knowledge, right, to living it out. Because Jesus does not want us to just gain knowledge, Right? The role of the Messiah, the mission of the Messiah, it was that then and it's still true now, is, that, is to transform our hearts and to change us into something we were not before. Right? To, to truly fulfill our souls. And, and Jesus, again, challenges them to say, you cannot just be smarter sinners. I want you to be transformed. And in order for you to be transformed, you have to change what you're doing. And they were faced with a choice. Right? That, that, okay, we will accept this teaching. We will follow Jesus wherever he's going to take us, right? Or we're going to just say, nope, that's far enough. Jesus, you're, you're crossing a boundary that I'm not willing to give you. Right? And they were faced with a choice. And that's exactly what Jesus presents them with in these last 10 verses. Right? They were faced with a choice, with a challenge from Jesus. And we are all faced with that same choice of how are we going to respond to Jesus. Because the truth is that we cannot just be smarter sinners. We can't just gain knowledge and never change anything. That is not God's plan for us. That is not the covenant of grace. Right? God's plan for us is that we will be transformed. That we will be different tomorrow than we are today. That we will be more like Christ tomorrow than we are today as our hearts are transformed and we are changed. Right? It, the covenant of grace is not about attending church on Sunday and going back to the way I was on Saturday, on Monday. Right? Following Jesus means that I am moved forward in my faith every day. And we are all faced with that choice. 
And this is a very significant time in everybody's faith journey. And we all face it, right? We come to that fork in the road and we say, okay, now what? Now that I know what I know about God, how am I going to respond to what I know? Am I going to make a change? Am I going to move in a new direction? Am I going to give that up? And I'm going to, am I going to, to you know, um, reconcile that relationship? A- am I going to change the way that my, the way I think or the way that I see the world? Whatever it be, I'm going to make that change or else I'm just going to step at that and say, nope, I'm going to go back to my comfort zone. And I'm just going to attend church and I'm just going to play the Christian game and, and, and just, and yet we make that choice every day. And that was the choice that they were faced with here. Again, think about Jesus in our culture today. I want to go back to this comic that I showed you earlier, right? Because this is a, is a little bit funny, but it's also really sobering, right? Because we can look at those kind of three responses and be like, oh yeah, I mean, I don't know why anybody would respond to Jesus like that. But yet the truth is that we respond to Jesus like that a lot. It might not be about the fish or about the bread, but, but we, we look at Jesus and say, Jesus, that's too far. I'm not willing to do that. I'm not going to go all in. I'm not going to fully surrender. Nope, uh, I'm just going to shrink back to my comfort zone, and I'll just attend on Sunday, and I'm just, I'll just camp in my faith right there. Again, Jesus' words as he presents this challenge the people, his words kind of blow up in his face. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. I've experienced that before, right? Like, like you're, you're talking to someone, you're working through, you're like, yes, I'm making progress, and all of a sudden, you just your words blow up, the whole situation just blows up, and it backfires. Right? As Jesus steps up the game to not just about knowledge, but about, about actually transforming people's lives and, and getting, taking steps in a new direction, right, is that the Jesus' words blow up in his face. Okay, and we see this larger crowd of disciples that have been, been here through this interaction with Jesus. We see how they react to Jesus in verse 66. It says, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Right? And Jesus is challenged to not just be smarter sinners, but to actually be transformed by his spirit. Blows up in his face. Right, and right here, the same thing that happens to people that go viral in our culture happens to Jesus, right? He was attracting thousands the day before, and now all of a sudden, everybody deserts. And he goes back, right, to nobody even wanting anything to do with him. Right, as this crowd of people say, nope, that's too far. I'm not willing to give that up. They weren't, follow, they weren't truly following Jesus. They just wanted, they wanted the free food. And yet we are, we are faced with the same question. Right? Do we want to really follow Jesus and trust him in the challenges he gives us and go to the next level, whatever that takes? Or do we just want to sit back and be comfortable and enjoy a blessing here and there, and just camp in our faith. That's not what God wants for you. That's not what God wants for any of us. But he wants to take us to a new place. 
Again, this is an incredible crossroads that everybody faces in their faith journey. And in fact, we face it every day in our faith. After the thousands desert Jesus, right, and they leave, they're like, nope, that's too far, we're not willing to do that, we're, we're out. Then Jesus turns to the 12, right, and he, he asks them the same question. He looks at them and he's like, well, are you guys going to leave too? And then Simon Peter kind of speaks for the 12, which Simon Peter does that a lot, right? He speaks for all of the disciples in verses 68 and 69, where he says, Lord, to whom would we go? Because you have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Again, we see that the popular response, right, was to walk away from Jesus. But yet the 12 sat down, they're like, Jesus, we're, we're, we're with you. We're all in. We're following. Because hey, notice what he say. He's like, Jesus, we have no other options. Like, where else would we go? Right, because we, we've given up everything. Why did they do that? Why did they even stay on this day? Because they were probably just as confused as the crowds. Jesus, you're not making any sense. Why did they stay? I, what he says, because we know you are the Holy One of God. Right? There's so much that we don't know, Jesus. We don't understand what you're trying to say. But the thing that I do know is that you are the Messiah. Right? And we've experienced enough of who you are that we can never go back. And even when there are things that I don't understand, even when there are things that, that I don't get, even when things get tough, I will not abandon you. I will still follow. Because the truth is, I have nowhere else to go. Because once we truly follow Jesus and we, we experience his love and feel his power in our lives, nothing else ever compares. And we can never go back. And that's what really following Jesus is about. It's not about attending church. Right? It's not about doing the right things. It's not about earning anything. It is about the covenant of grace, about experiencing God in a way that knowledge doesn't bring, but that only faith will. Right? That, that we are truly transformed by his spirit. That we're willing to go wherever Jesus challenges us to go because we know that he is the Holy One of God and that he loves me more than I can imagine. And even when things are tough and even when I don't understand, it will not change that ever. And even when the crowd shifts, I won't shift with them. And we are faced with this challenge every day we follow Jesus. All right, which brings to the final thought this morning, and that is this. We choose every day what our response to Jesus will be. So what is your response today? All right, are you going to rise to the challenge that he's calling you to, or are you going to shrink back in your faith and say, nope, that's far enough? I hope you'll rise to the challenge. Again, I don't know where you are in your faith journey, Maybe you never even actually received Christ as your Savior. You never 
committed to the covenant of grace. If you've never done that, then I hope that you will pray to him today and confess your sins and invite him into your life and say, Jesus, I want to go in a new direction. Save me. Even if you have received him as your savior, again, what challenges is he bringing to you? What, what change do you need to make? Right? You're, you're standing at the fork in the road every day. Will you follow Jesus or will you shrink back and be comfortable? I mean, I hope you'll rise to the challenge this next week, this afternoon, tomorrow. Lord, we know that you love us more than we can imagine. And Lord, we know that you don't want us to just be smarter sinners. But God, you want to transform our hearts. You want to transform our minds. Lord, you want to take us to a new place that we've never been before if we truly follow you. Lord, I pray that as we go this week that we would, Lord, we would choose to go the narrow path. Lord, that we'd rise to the challenge you put in front of us. Lord, that you would truly transform our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we would fall deeper in love with you as you change us, as we live freely in the covenant of grace. And Lord, I pray that as we live out our faith, as we rise to that challenge, Lord, that this world would see you in us. God, that we would share your light and your love to this world that so desperately needs you. God, we ask all kinds of questions. But Lord, we thank you that you are the answer today. And you're still the answer tomorrow. We praise you for that. Lord, thank you for being in our lives. Lord, for being our Heavenly Father that teaches us so much. Guide us as we go this week, as we live out our faith every day. In Jesus' name we pray.